The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. This morning, uh, my guest is Dr. David M. Allen. He is a psychiatrist and author of the book, How Dysfunctional Families Spur Mental Disorders, A Balanced Approach to Resolve Problems and Reconcile Relationships. Dr. Allen is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and the former Director of Psychiatric Residency Training at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis. He is also, right now I think he is in private practice. He's written several books, um, including um, the one we're going to be discussing today, and uh, Psychotherapy with Borderline Patients, an Integrated Approach. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Allen. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, according to you, millions of Americans have psychological issues or are affected by those of their family members, ranging from anxiety, bipolar disorder, to mood and personality disorders. But um, with all of this, you maintain that the growth of big pharma combined with an increasing desire of managed care providers to find simple and quick fixes has resulted in what you call an often myopic focus on biological causes of dysfunctional symptoms. So that's what we're going to talk about today, I guess. This is what your, your latest book uh, is about, uh, mental disorders and kind of finding a mat- balanced approach to resolve the problems and reconcile relationships within families because we want big pharma wants a big fix pills, sell drugs, medication, apparently doctors do too. We blame all of our psychological, many of our psychological problems and some of these serious ones as you've described, bipolar, um, personality disorders, etc., on uh, biological uh, genesis, on our genes. We don't want to take responsibility for our own mental health. Well, well some, some disorders like bipolar disorder are, I think, brain diseases. It's very difficult with our current uh, knowledge of uh, brain functioning, since there's over a trillion connections between nerve cells in the brain that are constantly changing, to, to identify what the brain disease versus what, like for instance, on an MRI scan shows up as just a difference. And uh, the field has been going back and forth. Uh, there's a tendency for simplistic uh, thinking that it's got to be either one or the other. So uh, one psychiatrist called it the brainlessness, mindlessness uh, pendulum. So for a while, we were, everything was psychoanalytic, and, and real diseases like schizophrenia were blamed on bad mothering, same with autism. Um, and, and now we've kind of gone to the other extreme, where personality problems are blamed on uh, brain, brain diseases, which is uh, equally ludicrous, uh, in my opinion. Uh, obviously, biological factors are involved in everything. There's, you know, there's a biological genetic component to our having this conversation, because it involves the brain. And uh, the brain is very plastic, uh, connections disappear, get stronger, weaker, depending on, on use, and 
depending on the response uh, to the environment. So uh, because uh, schizophrenia and things like that were blamed on family dysfunction at one point, there's uh, people are always bringing that up when you say, well, maybe other things are caused by family dysfunction, like everything in our diagnostic manual uh, doesn't have to be one or the other. They're just descriptive syndromes. We really, there's no causes listed in the well, can it, Doctor, can it be a combination of things? I mean, maybe we, do we need to talk about specific diagnoses, or are we talking just general, uh, in, uh, you know, just about general mental health disorders, or should we take each one separately? Because, well, it, I, I mean, I always seem to think it's sort of a, going back to, uh, this was a theory at one time, too, kind of 50-50. Our, our mental health is based on, obviously, our genes, our chemistry, but also our family uh, dynamics, because that impacts on, as you say, our brain, which is... There's a plasticity to our brain, so um, they, it's sort of one plays off of the other. Well, of course, everything is both. I mean, the question of you know genes versus uh, environment is always both. The question is, you know, how much of one versus how much of the other. I mean, nobody is blaming like Alzheimer's disease, for instance, on uh, on uh, psychological conflicts or stress, even although you know stress can make any disease worse, medical or psychiatric. Um, so there's always a biological component. Some people are more prone to develop certain personality patterns uh, than others, but, uh, and I think certain diseases are diseases, and uh, even though, like with schizophrenia, what they call expressed emotion or the sort of the high emotional temperature in the family can make it worse, I don't think it's the major cause. And in fact, in our field, there are no causes. There are only risk factors. Uh, there's no necessary or sufficient causes, I don't think, for almost anything in the uh, in the diagnostic manual. So it's always going to be a little bit of both. But uh, and medications, for instance, can help people that uh, like with patients with borderline personality disorder, which is my specialty area. They're very reactive. And Let's talk about the, borderline because per, that is your specialty. Yeah. Borderline personality disorders. Let's give a definition of it because uh, you know people who are listening are not necessarily physicians or and mental health professionals. They may be lay people and may uh, you know have a family member, for instance, who has been diagnosed with a personality disorder. So let's define right. it and it, talk about it. it. it yeah. Okay. It's, it's hard to define simply because there's there's nine different criteria and you you can have any five, six, seven, eight, or all nine of them, and um, that makes there's way over two hundred different combinations of characteristics, but basically it's, it's sort of people that are highly reactive, highly impulsive, uh, have anger control problems, and identity problems. They're not sh- sure how they want to be or who they want to hang out with, and they often tend to be very self-destructive. They often tend to engage in self-injurious behaviors, such as cutting themselves or making themselves throw up, and, and their relationships are the main issue, in my, in my opinion. It's the disorder of relationships. Uh, they're very often, often they can be provocative. Other times they can look like you know helpless victims, um, and people react to them very differently. Um, and in my experience, they act differently with different people. But uh, somebody who just looks at how they behave in their office as a therapist or something like that is only getting usually getting part of the picture. So if you don't ask specific follow-up questions or invite relatives in to discuss their points of view, you're only getting a very small part uh, of the picture. And Dr. Allen, when I was uh, getting my MSW, one of the things our family systems therapist or family uh, therapist professor uh, told us uh, to do, and I guess maybe some therapists did do that, but, uh, you know, as you say, you only get a small picture when you have the, the client or the patient in your office. Just have lunch or dinner with the patient and their family, and that's worth, like, 
12 visits uh, from <laughs> in your office because yeah, you unfortunately, were... unfortunately that makes it a, that what they call a boundary violation. <laughs> yeah, do that, but yeah, that would be that would be ideal if you could be like the super nanny and spend a night there in the house and watch what's going on. Uh, you might get a very different uh, picture. Like I have, since I used to train therapists, we would videotape sessions, and uh, if you didn't know the backgrounds, you would look at an interaction between, say, an adult with the disorder and her father. And thank God, the poor father, this, this woman's you know, raking him over the coals because he made her do chores when she was a teenager. Uh, of course, they don't mention that one of the chores was sexual favors. They kind of leave that part out. So if I show the, the, the tape twice and I mention that the second time, everybody has a, then you can, everything they say takes on a completely different cast. Uh, but if you didn't know that, and patients don't necessarily admit to that in the first session, although if, you, if you're matter of fact about asking about it, you're more likely to get an honest answer than if you look nervous yourself. Uh, but they, you know, people are ashamed of these things, so they don't, or they're trying to protect their families, actually. Um, so they're not necessarily going to tell you the whole story um, all at once. Uh, so you can, get, you can get really misled if you just look at part of the picture without knowing sort of the, um, what else is kind of going on in the whole background of the relationship. So in the case of borderlines, you're talking about it's relationship disorders, uh, but what, what about the origin of borderline personality disorders? I mean, um, I know at one time they would say, well, it's a personality disorder, it's your core personality, there's not too much you can do about it because, you know, the, the dysfunction occurred way back when I guess it, two or two and a half years old. Um, so, but is, is that still true? Is that true today? Is that something, or have we changed the definition of, of, of personality disorders and, and there's more hope in terms of, of uh, helping the patient and the family? Well, I, I, think, I definitely think there's, there, there is hope, but, but the, the question you're asking is extremely controversial. My, my point of view is really a minority uh, point of view. But a lot All right, of things, let's hear it. <laughs> well, uh, you know, biological predisposition to being the sensitive one, but, but you can also become like a family scapegoat if you happen to look like grandma or your mom and you were both the oldest girl in a family of several siblings. So one, one member of the family will often get sort of picked out to be the focus of the whole family's pathology. That's sort of the family systems view, which was big in the 1980s, but uh, because the family systems people overreached, as these therapy paradigms often do, and started blaming things on families that, you know, had nothing to do with families that kind of fell out of favor. Plus, uh, it's uh, not fashionable to talk about bad parenting anymore because then you're a parent basher. Of course, you could also say if you don't talk about it, then you're blaming the victim. Um, so in, in my experience, every, each case is going to be very, very different, but there's certain themes. I find that uh, when you look at the parents, they're often, they're often very conflicted about the role of being parents. They think that they're supposed to take care of their child's every need and they're supposed to sort of be end all and be all of every existence, but they really kind of don't like being parents uh, because it interferes with their careers. Both Everybody's out and, and then everybody's made to feel guilty because nobody's home left with the kids. We had Phyllis Shafley, who was a career woman who made a career out of criticizing career women. Uh, so there's all this guilt, and a child doesn't know any about doesn't know any of this. All they, all they know is that they're getting this sort of uh, I need you, I hate you, uh, to oversimplify it dramatically, uh, message, and it's fairly consistent, and often it's focused on, on the most difficult uh, child. So if you have one that's colicky, if a baby that's colicky, that person, that kind of sets off a chain of events. So, yeah, the, the genes play into it, uh, but there's a gene-environment interaction. Uh, there's a statistic that a lot of biological psychiatrists use called heritability, and to me that's a fraud because it's a measure of the, the end product of gene environment 
uh, interaction, the phenotype. It's not a measure of their genes, but it's used as a as a uh, as a synonym for genetic, and that's just just false. And there's a number of arguments that I won't spend time in. It shows how that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, like one study showed that school truancy had a high rate of heritability. So I always say, well, if you think that cutting school is in your genes, you know, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to uh, talk <laughs> well, really to you about. Well, really, take away from the responsibility of the parent, of the family, of, 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 of the patient themselves. I mean, if you're blaming everything on genes and everything on the physical, I mean, then, then it sort of leads to what you were talk- we started talking about in the beginning, then there must be a pill for it. You know, if there's some kind of just biological reason for this behavior, take a pill, and then our society, I guess, as is, is you talk about in the book, or maybe even on your blog, then you've got big farmers saying, well, you know, you've got a problem, a uh, physical problem, take a pill for it. And uh, so, I mean, that seems to be the, the remedy for... Well, and, 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 yeah. and managed care will pay, will pay. I mean, psychiatrists, most of them these days aren't therapists anymore like we all used to be. You know, I'm kind of an old-timer, but uh, most of them are just doing medication. And if they refer to thera- for therapy, they'll refer to a psychologist or a social worker. Uh, but a lot of them don't even do that. Um, and you especially see this in child psychiatry. I'm not a child psychiatrist, but uh, PBS did a show called The Medicated Child where they showed a session where a psychiatrist was typing on the computer and, and the mother was saying, you know, he only acts this way before he leaves the school. Once, get, once he gets to school, he's, he's fine. And, his resp- and the psychiatrist's response was, let's up the lamictal. You know, and I'm looking at that and I'm going, <laughs> Are you not, you're not, he's not even listening. Uh, you know, biological- Is it the fault? Well, do you think it's the fault of the profession, of the psychiatrists, of the social workers, the psychologists, whomever, a big farmer? Um, or is it also just part of our, and I say the word fault, of our society as well? Because we do want, I mean, the patient, the family, they want the big fix. They don't want to be responsible. They want a quick and easy answer to whatever the problem is. So we end up being a society of, well, actually being medicated and drugged. It works, I guess, from the professional and the client or patient. Oh, absolutely. It's the answer to your question is, you know, all of the above. You know, it, there's plenty of blame to go around for <laughs> for everybody. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I've had patients coming in asking for, you know, they say they claim to have adult attention deficit disorder, and when I won't prescribe them uh, amphetamines, and by the way, Adderall and methamphetamine are, are almost identical molecules, um, they get angry and, and leave, and then I'll write a negative review on, on, online. Um, so, so how do, oh, that's a good example. Okay, so how do you treat They leave because you won't medicate them. So well, then you know, you, the, the, I, I say you're welcome to get a second opinion. You know, I'm not, I'm not threatened by that, but I'm not going to prescribe that for you because I think it's, uh, it's going to be harmful rather than beneficial. Uh, when I was... Uh, working at University of Tennessee, student mental health. The University of Tennessee uh, Health Science Center has no undergraduate campus. They're all professional schools and graduate schools. And, and, one, and one quarter of the, of the students that went to student mental health were diagnosed with adult ADHD, and many of them hadn't been diagnosed as children. So you're wondering, well, gee, how did you get into medical school if you couldn't pay <laughs> I'm just sort of wondering how that was even possible. I mean, there are ways around it, and people do that. Um, if they're dyslexic, it used to be that most times people would be diagnosed with attention deficit. It turned out to be dyslexic, and they, they their mind would wander in school because they couldn't read. Uh, but that's kind of gone all, all by the wayside now. If the uh, boys are just acting like normal boys, 
they're getting labeled with this thing. So they did a study. So there's over-diagnosing and over-medicating at the same time. So when you have certain, as you say, boy, I have three boys. So, and both of, they're all three bright, they're in their 30s now and went to good schools, good careers, et cetera. But when they were very young, you know, as I'm listening to you, uh, you know, the boys are running all over the place. I had one of them who was in a classroom. He couldn't sit there for five hours. He finished his work and he was ready to get up and do something else. Now, at that time, they weren't doing so much over-diagnosing of, of kids having attention deficit disorder, but probably 10 years later, he would have been diagnosed as having that. Or the uh, teachers would have pushed you into getting an evaluation, and you would have gone to, not a child psychiatrist even, but uh, just your family doctor, and they would have prescribed you know, Adderall or uh, Ritalin. Um, and it, and it's, it's really unfortunate, because like I say, it's it's basically methamphetamine, a slightly different molecule uh, with all the problems that that creates. Um, and if you uh, show that maturity has become a disease, immaturity has become a disease now that we don't have semesters anymore like we did when I was younger and everybody uh, goes for a whole year, the younger kids in the class are far more likely to get diagnosed with ADHD than the older kids in the class. And there are like three studies that, sh- that show this pretty dramatic difference. So basically we're defining... You know, normal immaturity as a, as, a, as a disease and then just medicating people to keep them quiet. And it doesn't really work all that well because the average academic gain from putting somebody on uh, um, an amphetamine is usually less than a semester. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if, if, if I took... Right, so we're drugging I, our children. I mean, you're, we're, yeah. we're drugging our children with, uh, as you say, uh, immaturity is considered a disease. It's maybe easier, and, and I'm not blaming teachers, easier for the teacher to have her kid drugged rather than running around the room and having to, to deal with him or her. Well, well, right, if they send a note home to mom, it used to be that mom would take it out, would discipline the kid. Now the mom goes and yells at the teacher. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people have pointed this out. And this is just stuff from looking at the culture. So if you just look again at what's going on in your office and you're not paying attention to what's going on and you're not reading about what's going on in the culture, you wouldn't know about all, uh, all of this. So, and then, so if the parent comes in and yells at the teacher, then the, uh, the administration labels the teacher as the problem. So what's the, what's the, uh, what's the motivation for the, the parent to do the right, for the teacher to even do the right thing? Um, well, if the title of your book is How Dysfunctional Families Spur Mental Disorders, um, what do we do? And you take a balanced approach. What, would, what is the balanced approach given the context of, you know, given the environment of the school, of our culture, of, you know, what, politically? I mean, because this is all related to, you know, um, how we operate in all those arenas. So what do we do? Well, uh, Again, individuals, there's only so much you can do. I mean, you can advocate for adequate mental health funding and uh, complain to insurance companies when they, uh, when they won't authorize psychotherapy sessions for, for people that have obvious psychological issues. Uh, I think the, the, you know, doctors tend, a lot of doctors are not very good businessmen. They're not that, really, they're not that assertive for people that are bright enough to get into medical school, and they just kind of go with the flow. Um, so people like me are, you know, either we don't get listened to at all or, they're, or, they're, or they get you know, they get lambasted or, you know, knocked in, in, in articles in, in the professional newspapers saying, you know, they're avoiding, they're not paying attention to all these fMRI findings, which could just be, very, you know, normal variants or re- conditioned responses or mm-hmm. they don't have to be diseases. Um, and then the drug companies, of course, uh, do a lot of continuing education, and they used to be kind of fairer, but lately they've used a lot of propaganda techniques, the same techniques that are used in politics, really. Uh, so they'll make disclaimers, but knowing that nobody's going to listen to disclaimers, 
they're they're just going to they'll, they'll just walk away with a take home message that uh, you should give this medication or that medication. So uh, medicine is big business. It's a I huge mean, business. Yeah. yeah, it's a huge business. So uh, is there any? I mean, you're just you're one physician, one psychiatrist. Is there any kind of a movement in terms of people or professionals who support you to kind of get away from this, or at least begin to be aware of that? I don't think that a lot of people are aware necessarily, which always surprises me, that medicine is a big business, that the pharmaceutical companies do have a, uh, influence your diagnosis and treatment. And, and treatment guidelines, even. Uh, there are usually uh, people with pharma connections, the doctors who get paid as experts for different drug companies making up treatment guidelines. Um, so yeah, there are. To answer your question, there are there are a lot of us that that feel this way, but we're kind of a disorganized bunch because we're all kind of you know maverick and you're the pariahs. <laughs> yeah, it's not pariahs. Man, there was a big argument. I got it on somebody else's blog about whether we should quit the American Psychiatric Association. And my argument was, well, no, we shouldn't. Even though it's 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 kind of corrupted. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate. There are psychiatric medications can be very useful and very important, so I don't want Okay, to so them. when are they useful? When I, let's talk about that. When would you say they are useful? Well, for certain, again, you have to, it's by diagnosis. If somebody has you know, panic attacks, for instance, I couldn't do the type of psychotherapy I do with them unless I put them on medication for their panic attacks because they'd get too anxious <laughs> uh, and they'd start hyperventilating and, and you know, maybe even faint. I mean... It, it, uh, so if you have a certain disorder that's amenable to psychiatric medication, and there's medications, and, and people have side effects of the anti We also have an anti-psychiatry group that says that all of psychiatry is baloney. Uh, so I also get a lot of flack from them on my blog, so I get it kind of from both sides. Uh, but more from the anti-psychiatry folks who get mad when I say that antidepressants, if you have a clinical depression, actually work. If you're just chronically unhappy, and there's a huge difference, they tend not to work. But a lot of the studies... Uh, that are done on on drugs include both, and they and purposely uh, um, make the, the 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 border between those two disorders because it's somewhat vague, uh, even vaguer. And in fact, placebo response rates in drug studies have been going in depression have been going up by about ten percent per decade, uh, which to me means that we're also these research projects are done by control are not done by academics. They're done by these research organizations who get paid for for recruiting clients. And clients and their subjects get paid if they have the disorder. So both sides have a uh, have a financial stake yeah. in exaggerating their symptoms. Well, isn't that true of some of the universities, the big research centers? You know, the the research are are funded by the drug companies. So it's true. And if you looking don't get for funding, a certain outcome, yeah. And if you don't get funded, you're out because there, there's no state support of, of uh, faculty salaries. Most of it's from research grants. And the NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, they only fund maybe 16% of, of um, applications. Uh-huh. And you practically have to have done the study already in order to, for them to say, plus there's politics in that too. Even in the psychotherapy research, there's politics. There's uh, each school of thought in psychotherapy has their own advocacy group. Right now, the, something called cognitive behavioral therapy is the most uh, influential. And they claim to have the most studies, and they do, but... Their studies are, are, don't, aren't that dramatic and just show some symptom improvement. They never look at relationships of the patients, which are, especially in personality disorders, is the, is the, is the main source of the disturbance. Well, uh, doctor, what is, the, what, what, what is the, the biggest selling drug today, or is there one in the industry? I know anti, I mean, antidepressants 
it seems to me, are doled out like candy, uh, at least. Yeah, right. You'll, you'll fill out one of those symptom checklists, and if you come out positive, that your, your internist will put you on an antidepressant. And then they wonder why it... Well, they, they don't even follow you up or see if you're having side effects, because you know, some people can tolerate one but not another, and luckily we have several. So if you find... If you're having bad side effects from one, we can switch you to a different one. And you don't have bad side effects, but they'll, they'll just be sent out, and, and they won't even be followed up. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I don't know what the most commonly prescribed drugs. I mean, for a long time, Valium for 20 years was uh, the most commonly prescribed drug in the world, but then it went generic, and now all the drug companies denigrate it uh, as way more addictive than it actually is um, and push drugs that can, are potentially toxic, like antipsychotic medications like Seroquel, for other disorders. Uh, so, you know, you can get addicted to insulin because it can cause diabetes, but that's okay, but you can't be dependent on, on uh, drugs like Valium. Uh, because they're horrible and have, except they have no side effects at all, unless you're unless you're, you know, have Alzheimer's disease, in which case they make it worse. Um, and people don't abuse them particularly, although they can be abused, but it's not that common really. Um, so there's there's a, uh, I wish I could answer some of these questions simply, but there's just so many factors uh, that are all kind of operating independently, but in concert in a way. It, it's sort of like a vast conspiracy without anybody actually conspiring. Uh, well, if it's a vast conspiracy, what can we as consumers do? What do we, as you say, it's very complex, it's complicated. We can read your book, we can also uh, go to your, uh, we, you have a blog also a blog. as well. And two yeah. blogs, I have one on psychology today, and then I have another one called Fam- uh, Family, Family Dysfunction. <laughs> okay, so we can go to uh, two blogs. Yeah, two blogs. Uh, so, and there's other, blo- there's other bloggers out there that uh, I think are, uh, there was a guy named Dan Carlat, uh, he, he kind of stopped doing it and got involved in another thing, but he had a blog. And uh, there's one called Psych Critic. And they, uh, yeah, you, can, you have to educate yourself. But again, there's so much information out there. Um, it's, you know, how do you know which, which one to believe and which one uh, not to believe? It's, it's not that easy. But uh, if somebody, if you see a psychiatrist and they spend 15 minutes with you evaluating you and come up with the diagnosis, go find another doctor because you can't make a psychiatric diagnosis in 15 minutes. It, so, okay, we have a couple minutes left, minutes and we don't even have 15 minutes. So tell me, like a patient comes into your office to be diagnosed, and you say, okay, 15 minutes, you can't be diagnosed in 15 minutes adequately. I, what do you do? I spend an hour, uh, minimum 45 minutes, and that's just... And that's just hitting all the highlights of everything. We do a complete biopsycho, what they call biopsychosocial. You look at the biological factors, the psychological factors, and the relationship factors. You've got to touch on all of those. And you've got to ask follow-up questions. So if the patient says, the, like, uh, bipolar disorder is getting way overdiagnosed. So if somebody says that they, there's periods where they have a lot of energy, well, how long do they last? Oh, a couple of hours. Uh, and I don't sleep at all at night. Well, how about during the day? If you don't ask that follow-up question, you get the idea that they're not sleeping at all, and in fact, they're, they're, they've just got their days and nights mixed up. But people doing a symptom checklist will say, uh, uh, yes, he has a symptom of mania. Well, they don't. You know. So you've got, the, patient's got, you know, the doctor has to show some, some curiosity, like a, like a news reporter. You, know, you ask follow-up questions. <laughs> Make sure the patient understands what you're getting at. When you're when you're trying to find out if they have a symptom, and you want to know the, 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 a little bit about the relationship context in which the symptoms take place, as well as the history uh, of uh, growing up and the relationship history and the family history. So a good uh, a good psychiatric evaluation uh, takes at least forty five minutes to just as a start, and then you, you follow the patient and you revise it as you go along. You don't necessarily go with your first impression as a doctor. We used to. 
write down diagnostic impression instead of diagnosis because it was just our initial impression. But managed care doesn't accept that anymore. You have to get a diagnosis whether whether you have one or not. Um, and personality disorders used to be on a whole separate what they call axis, and you know, some insurance companies wouldn't pay for treatment. So, so now they're all on the same axis, but then the risk of that is that you start thinking of them as brain diseases instead of relationship disorders. Uh, so well, I guess the first thing that we can do is I mean, we, have to, we have to say goodbye because my next guest is here, but okay. uh, read your book, How Dysfunctional Families Spur Mental Disorders, A Balanced Approach to Resolve Problems and Reconcile Relationships, and go to uh, Dr. David M. Allen's blog series on psychology today. Uh, any uh, and what else do we want to in terms of information? If uh, anybody wants to, um, obviously get m- more information about what we've been talking about today. Well, I do have my, my uh, I do have my contact information on on, uh, on both of my blogs. So uh, you can email me again. I can't give you specific medical advice. I can just talk about in general. Uh, but I can if you know if you have specific questions about this, I can give you sort of a general answer. Great. Uh, Thanks. Thanks. I mean, uh, I think we learned a lot in this half hour, and thank you so much for being on the show this morning, Dr. David M. Allen. Okay, thank you. Yep, we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. 
We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Linda Spangle, RNMA, weight loss coach and emotional eating expert, and her book is Friends with the Scale, How to Turn Your Scale into a Powerful Weight Loss Tool. Um, Linda believes that when the scale is used in the right way, the scale can become your biggest ally in any weight loss weight loss plan. So Friends with the Scale presents a smart, practical approach that helps you completely change your relationship with the scale. Uh, Linda is the owner of Weight Loss for Life, a healthy lifestyle coaching and training program located in Denver, Colorado. She's a registered nurse with a master's degree in health education and is recognized nationally as a leading authority on emotional eating and other psychological issues of weight loss. Welcome to the show, Linda. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you here. As you and I were talking a little bit before we started the show, uh, weight loss is a huge, or weight gain, I guess, is a huge problem. And, uh, you know, half the people in our country are overweight and the other third are obese. And uh, so I don't know if the scale has been um, a helpful tool to them or not. Let's talk about that. How does the scale become your friend? Well, you know, it starts with what happens that makes it not your friend. Um, what I have found in my work is that so many dieters get just hung up on the scale. You know, it's like instead of going in, just uh, weighing themselves, noting it, and leaving the room, they um, they get caught into like, oh, no, I'm so awful, and it ruins their day, ruins their self-esteem. I mean, it for so many people, it's a very negative thing, even though it's necessary for working on your weight. When you say it's necessary, how often should we weigh ourselves? Let's say, let's say we are in a normal weight or we, we're someone who can maintain their weight. That's one example. Let's say, but then someone else who's trying to lose weight, what do you do? I mean, are you supposed to weigh yourself every day? You know, it's a very individual thing. I actually don't have a rule about it. I think it depends on each person. I have clients who weigh themselves every day, others that do once a week, some do once a month, some people not at all. I think it has to be what feels right for you. But if you choose to weigh yourself every day, which I think is fine, you need to be able to do it without getting angst about it because if you do, then you're in trouble. All right, how do you do that? Let's say you weigh, you want to lose 10 pounds, 20 pounds, and so you weigh yourself every day. And one day it's a half a pound up, and the next day it's a half a pound down. And the day that it's a half a pound up, you get, what, panicky? Some people, I think, when it's a half a pound up, they figure it's, it, uh, it doesn't matter, so then they go out and eat and stuff themselves. I mean, I know that's one reaction to, to uh, when the, you weigh yourself all the time and the scale kind of fluctuates, even if it's not that much. Yeah, you are exactly right. I've seen that pattern so much where, oops, scale went up and there's a panic reaction. And instead of just going, okay, tomorrow it'll be different, people run to the refrigerator or something and just start eating. Here's my thought on it. First of all, weight loss is never a straight line. It doesn't continue to go ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching every day. It'll bounce around. And there are so many things that affect the scale reading, you know, the humidity, the barometric pressure, um, how much exercise you've done, stress levels. There's so many things that affect it. You need to recognize that what you see on the scale this morning may not have anything to do with your eating and exercise. It might have to do with a bunch of other factors. So I, I teach people... Look at the scale number as data. 
That's all it is. It's not a reflection always of your own actions. It's just one tool, one piece of data, and learn how to detach from it instead of getting so wrapped up in it. So the scale is just information. It's data. Uh, it's, it really isn't, as you say in the book, I think, neither positive or negative. It's just another tool. It's another. It's like taking your blood pressure doesn't tell everything about your heart necessarily, but it is information about how your heart is functioning perhaps, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, that's, a, that's a great way to look at it. Okay. So, you know, and yeah. what I really encourage people to do is get a pattern. If you decide, for example, you're going to weigh yourself every day, here's exactly how to do it. Do weigh yourself before you've eaten anything or drank anything. So first thing in the morning with either no clothes or minimal clothes, step on the scale, note the number, step back off, and leave the room. Don't move the scale around and see if you can get a better number at a different place on the floor. Don't go, oh, I forgot to take off my earrings. I mean, I have people... Guilty as charged. <laughs> scale games. One lady would not weigh herself until she... She didn't put her contacts in until she'd weighed herself. Isn't that something? Yeah. No, I understand that because I, I, I've actually... I mean, I'm thin, but I, so I weigh myself every day, but I, I have to... I watch it. it would have very, you know, I'm very conscious of how much I weigh. But I, I can identify with that lady with the contacts because yeah. I sometimes will take off my watch. <laughs> and, uh, and I, and and I want to add a piece to that. When you, yeah. And I don't know if, if you if recommend this or not, but I think when you weigh yourself, you need to do it alone. I know uh, my boyfriend sometimes will want to say, well, how much do you, and he'll be standing over my shoulder, and it's like, no, don't do that. I, have to, I, have, I need privacy because um, I, I don't know if that's something that you would... No, totally agree, totally agree, because the question I like to ask people is, who owns your weight? You do. No one owns your weight beside you, and it's your choice if you want to reveal the number, if you want to talk about it. I don't care if, if it's with who lives in your household or whether it's your friends going, hey, how much weight have you lost? You may or may not want to share that information. It's your choice because you own your weight. Okay, so this is, but in the book you talk about the one time you should not step on the scale. When should you not step on the scale? Any time that you've been traveling. If you've been on a vacation or um, a cruise or any kind of actual traveling, whether it's by air or by car for a number of hours, your body will always retain fluid. And you know that it takes between 48 to 72 hours for your body to get back to balance. So what I always tell people is if you've been traveling, Always wait three days before you get on the scale because then you'll get a more accurate number. You know, in contrast, you've probably done this. You know, it's like we go on a vacation, we get home, and the next morning we jump on the scale to, quote, see how much damage we've done. You know, that's really, um, that's not a healthy way to look at the scale. That's trying to somehow punish yourself for the fact that you had a lot of fun on vacation. So I would just say wait three days. Then you'll see something that's more accurate. But what if you've been on a cruise and you've been eating more than you usually eat, because cruises are good examples for that, and that you have put on like five, six pounds, and then you wait another three days when you get home, aren't you just, I mean, there's a tendency to pile on more weight because you really don't want to face it, that issue of denial? That's one thing. And then, Linda, I have the opposite. When I go on vacation... I usually lose weight because I'm eating well, but I'm eating sort of, and I always eat well at home, but I maybe eat too much of a good thing if I'm having a piece of meat instead of 
four ounces, I'll have seven ounces, or you know, uh, or a piece of fish that I should have five ounces, and I'll have six ounces. Uh, but if I'm on a vacation, I can't go to the refrigerator usually, mm-hmm. um, so that I'm eating. My thing is portion, really, maybe more portion control, and I'll come home and feel thinner and get on the scale. But that's not everybody. No, but that's wonderful that you're able to do that. I think that that really speaks well to your own healthy living. Back to your question about the cruise. Let's say you went on a seven-day cruise, and you, if you actually did get on the scale when you got home, it showed five, maybe six pounds higher than before you left in the cruise. Here's the deal. You did not put on five pounds of fat stores. It doesn't happen that way. The human body takes a fair amount of time to actually put weight on and keep it there. So what you're seeing is fluctuation in fluid levels. You might be seeing a little bit of, you know, if you look at your fingers and you try to turn your rings, you'll notice they're puffy. Um, There's all these factors that affect that scale number that don't have anything to do with your fat stores. I always recommend if people have been on a cruise that they wait a full week before getting on the scale. And during that week, return to your really healthy eating pattern, get your exercise in place, and most likely at the end of that week when you get on the scale, you'll, you may see a pound or two, but nothing that's going to be real freaky. All right, so that's... That I, that's, I mean, that sounds like a great idea, but there hard is to one. Do, huh? Yeah, hard to do. It's not so easy to do that. But um, and and this is is one thing I want you to address. Maybe related to that is you know how to you describe it as how to fix failure failure thinking when the scale goes up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that is that's a I keep saying huge issue, and I guess huge is the right word when you're talking about gaining weight. But uh, how do you do that? You know, you you get on the scale and you feel like a failure and and you feel like, well, this is never going to work anyway, so I'm just going to stuff my face. You know, part of that goes back to how do you define what the scale is? You know, the scale is a tool. It's actually not a measurement of your value as a person. I have to tell you about a lady I worked with a couple years ago. She said every morning I would get on the scale and I would measure my, my worth and whether I was a successful person or not. And she said, I finally got so sick of letting that piece of metal define my life. She took her scale and took it out in her driveway and beat it to death with a sledgehammer, and then she hung it on her wall like a deer head trophy. She said it was amazing that somehow that broke that chain for her and helped her realize that the scale did not have to determine her value. So I think that's a way to rethink if the scale, if you're so hooked on the scale that you feel like a success or a failure based on what the scale says, you're in big trouble because so many times the scale number will not have anything to do with what your actions were. It has to do with something else. Did you know that even the tides, certain times of year, the tides will affect the scale numbers? That I didn't know. I, 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 as I'm hearing you, I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, well, the scale has different meanings for different people. For me, it helps me to, I feel like I'm in control. It's a good thing in the sense that I feel like I, I won't get into denial in terms of if I feel like I've gained weight or I've gained a pound or two. It doesn't allow me to do that. It makes me feel good. I mean, I do want to face it. You've gained two pounds. Okay, it's time to lose. And then when I... 
a scale is not available to me, like you're describing, say, on vacation, although on a cruise it is available. You can always go up to the, uh, you know, there's a workout center or whatever. But um, I feel kind of out of control when I can't weigh myself. Do you have clients? You know, pay- that's, a, yeah. and that's a common thing. Um, I had a lady a few years ago who said she went on this fantastic trip. Her husband went an all-expense-paid trip to Florida. So they had tickets to Disney World. They stayed in this wonderful condo on the beach and had a sports car to drive. She came back to my office after her vacation, and I said, well, how was it? Oh, she said, I was kind of miserable. I said, well, why was that? She said, well, every morning I would get up and I would look out at those beautiful surroundings, and then I would wonder what I weighed, and without my scale, I never knew what kind of day to have. So see, that to me is why I do think we have to change the way that we are attached to that scale. It's a little bit like if you looked outside and said, oh, it's raining today, I must be a horrible person. I mean, we don't do that. The rain is just, and the weather is just data. The scale can be a support and a help. It's a wonderful tool. But if we get to the point where you depend on it to keep your actions strong, it may happen. Sometimes it will work fine, but other times it may not. So it could so be I a deterrent yeah. against that. That's interesting. So tell me about like a, a patient or a client um, or a consumer. I'm never sure what's politically correct right now. comes into your I office. Know. And uh, what is the presenting problem usually in your practice? Because, I mean, you obviously, you're the weight management uh, uh, professional coach. Uh, you have this training program, which, by the way, is in Denver, Colorado. Uh, what, what's your typical client? Most Who is your typical people, client? Yeah, most of the people that I work with are primarily females. Most of them are people who have a long history of weight loss and regain, and they're, they're so frustrated, and many of them have to lose a lot of weight. And so I'm a very whole-person approach. I help them look at, okay, what kind of a meal plan are we going to follow um, so that we look at healthy eating, what kind of exercise levels you know, are going to work, and what, how do we address that. But the third thing that I think is the biggest one of all is how do you change the way you cope with life so that food doesn't have to be a solution to everything you don't like. And that's where I do a powerful amount of work is the emotional eating. Um, and the scale fits in with that. You know, I've had some people that I've said, I think it's time for you to stay away from the scale. I've actually got another client right now who I asked her to buy a scale and, and start using one again because she was, well, I think I'm doing okay, but she went six months and never lost a pound. Because she wasn't getting her, she, but she didn't know her data. So she wasn't doing okay. She was somebody who needed the scale. Right? She did. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess maybe that's what I was talking about. Maybe for myself, I would have the tendency to get into denial. You know how when you put on your clothes and they're tight, and it's like, well, this must have sh- the cleaners must have shrunk it, or I shrunk it, or somehow these. Shorts, really, I don't know what's wrong with the shorts, not what's wrong with me, but, uh, and you don't want to get into that. You met, this is funny, and, and I've had this happen uh, many, many years ago, and my, my weight fluctuated more, I think, as one, sometimes as one ages, it, it balances, it's easier to balance your weight, but um, not wanting to go to the doctor's office because you don't want to be weighed, so you make sure you make your doctor's appointment, you give yourself some time out so you can lose weight before you go, and I guess that's a common thing because that's something that you mentioned in the book. Absolutely. In fact, that is one of the most traumatic things for a lot of women. I've had people, I had one lady who said, I didn't go to the doctor for 40 years because I knew they'd make me get on the scale, 
And I knew I was overweight. I didn't need them to put it in my face. And I've had so many people that dread, dread, dread going to the doctor because of that. Let me give you my quick advice on that whole area. A lot of people don't realize this, but you typically do not have to be weighed when you go to the doctor's office. You can go for, uh, you know, anything, whether it's your OBGYN or a, a sprained ankle. They'll ask you to get on the scale. And you can say to them, I choose not to be weighed today, or I would like to decline. Now, many times, you'll be surprised. They'll just say, okay, that's fine. I had a recent thing where someone said, no, I'm sorry, we're required to have you get on the scale each time you're here. I said, well, I'll tell you what, that would be fine, but I'd like to meet with the doctor first, and then I can kind of see if he wants me to get on the scale. So I did that. I had a little injury thing, met with the doctor, got it all figured out. I walked out the door. I never did get on the scale. You can give them the morning weight you had at home and say, write that in my chart if you need to. But instead of avoiding the doctor's office, take back your power and say, actually, my weight is not something I want to have addressed in the middle of the, of the hallway right now, so I'd like to not be weighed. That's, I mean, I never heard of that before. I made the assumption that you had to be weighed, just as I you're know, describing. That's what most people do. Yeah, I make that assumption. And there is something I want to add to that because I think you're so right, particularly if you're very sensitive to being weighed. I've been to like a primary care physician, and the scale may be as much as 10 pounds different than another physician, than the gynecologist um, yeah. scale. Absolutely. That's another issue is that there is no perfect scale the one that we can count on as being the right number. In fact, a lot of um, the scales that are at physicians' offices haven't been calibrated for a long time, and that'll affect the numbers, and you can actually have a huge fluctuation compared to morning weight. I've had that happen myself. So, again, don't worry. Even if the doctor says, I'm sorry, because of the medication you're on, I do need to have a weight. That'll happen sometimes if you're on blood pressure medication and things. But you don't have to let that number on their scale ruin your whole month. Uh, You can stand backwards. You can look at the ceiling. You can say to the staff person, I don't want to know the number, and they'll say, that's fine. So there's a lot of ways still to prevent yourself from getting hooked into that crazy number that most of the time is nothing close to what you weighed at home. Linda, is there any type of scale that you recommend to have at home? Um, any particular type of scale that's more accurate or that if one can, to, to have in your own house? You know, the main thing is I advocate a, in um, a digital scale as opposed to the kind, say, with the round dial. Digital scales in the last few years have had um, major changes, and they're so much more accurate. My favorite brand of scale is the ones made by it's a company called Eat Smart. Um, you can just buy them on Amazon. And I have found that they are consistently very, very high um, recommendations and work really well. You know, people will say, well, should I get one that has the body fat percent and all of that? And my feeling is, you know, if you want to play around with lots of detailed numbers, that's fine. But most of the time, those are not really that accurate. I tend to recommend for most people, get a scale that shows your weight, and that's it. And keep life very simple. 
Yeah, just keep it simple. Eat smart scales. Can you buy those? Where do you buy those? You know, they sell them only through Amazon. That's their distributor. Oh, that's it, Amazon. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can order yeah. them online. They're, at a very, they're a very reliable company. Eat smart scales, and uh, you can get those on Amazon. And while we're talking about um, um, websites, yours is web, weightlossjoy.com? Yes, that's correct. And the reason for that is that weight loss joy is how you feel when it works. Did you, your interest in weight loss? I, I want to ask you: Does that is that personal? I mean, how did you become? I mean, you're an RN, obviously. Um, there, you know, it makes sense to be um, in this field, weight management coach. But was there any kind of a personal motivation for you to be? Um, yeah. Now, yes or no? Yes, there yes. was a, a very significant <laughs> one. Um, I've never had a huge amount of weight to lose, but I've done the same 25 or 30 pounds over and over and over. One of the struggles I had was um, I was not able to have children. I carried three pregnancies to six months and then lost them. I had a, a uterus defect that they didn't know about. So because of that, I sank into a lot of struggles with grief, but instead of working it through, especially as time went on, um, I just shoved it away. And so anytime I felt sad, I would eat. And I had a big problem with just emotional eating to keep shoving away my negative thoughts and my sadness. And it finally was with the help of a really good therapist who said, Linda, you're eating instead of crying. I was like, well, I don't want to cry. I hate that. She said, until you're willing to feel your feelings, I think you're going to continue to struggle with your weight. So she and I worked on some plans and... For instance, on one year on Mother's Day, which usually I would just eat all day long on Mother's Day, this particular year I got up in the morning, had a little breakfast, and then I waited. And about midway in the morning I could feel that deep sadness rising up. But in this time, instead of shoving it away from, with food, I sat down at my kitchen table and I buried my head in my arms and I sobbed for an hour. And I, I mean, I just cried for all the stuff I didn't get to do, like take little girls to kindergarten. All three of my babies were girls. Um, take them to prom, you know, help them with prom, have weddings. I let all of that come out of me. Finally, I, I felt like I was kind of done, and I got up and I washed my face, and I went and stood outside in the sunshine, and you know what? I felt totally peaceful. And it was the first time in many years that I did not reach for food to just get me through Mother's Day. And that was a big turning point. That's when I felt like I really got a better handle on feeling my feelings instead of shoving them away. So this was a, the turning point for you, and then I'm assuming after that you shared it with others, obviously. And, yeah, and, and you know, I continue And I made to, it your career. Yeah, and I continue to work on my own weight. Um, I'm a breast cancer survivor as well, and the medications I'm on, of course, contribute to putting on extra weight. So... I focus and work on it every day. I believe that we, we just have to live in a kind of an umbrella of, okay, I take good care of myself. I do the best I can. Sometimes my weight creeps up. All right, then it's time to take, take a hold and tighten things down and drop it back down again. But I, I don't think we ever get to where it's not an issue at all. Yeah, people I think say it's I always going to be an issue. I agree. With, we only have 30 yeah. seconds left. Um, I uh, thank you so much for sharing your own story as well as all the information that's in the book. And just so that um, people who are listening will 
um, have the opportunity, obviously, to buy your book, Friends with the Scale, How to Turn Your Scale into a Powerful Weight Loss Tool, Linda Spangle. You can buy the book, I guess, online, bookstores everywhere? Yes, bookstores, Amazon.com, as well as Canada, and on my website, weightlossjoy.com. Great. Linda, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. We are going, we have to say goodbye. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 